If you have your Bibles, let's take it and open it to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, and we'll read from verse 10. As we study, continue our study of the armor of God, and just as a quick reminder, as we study the armor of God, uh, we do need the full armor. It says, take up the whole armor of God. So even as we go through it um, one piece at a time, don't forget to, to, to say that as we are studying it, that we have to take all of it. We have to be fully clothed with every piece to be able to stand firm against the devil and his schemes. So let's read together God's word from verse 10 up until verse 14. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we come to you with deep dependence that you would take your word and plant it deep in our hearts. Holy Spirit, please convict us of our sin, comfort our hearts. Help us, Lord, to stand firm with the breastplate of righteousness that we might not fall or be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Lord, please come do your mighty work in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, beloved, we come to the piece of the armor which covers the most of us, right? The breastplate of righteousness. Now, Paul commands us to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And we are strong in the Lord when we take up the whole armor of God. And that's why it says in verse 14, Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, when we talk about the breastplate of righteousness, there is a question whether this righteousness refers to the righteousness of Jesus, which we receive as a free gift from God. In other words, that passive righteousness that we don't do anything for, we just receive it by faith, or our righteousness, which we have to perform in obedience to God's word. Which one of these two righteousness does the breastplate of righteousness refers to? Now, or to put it another way, does the breastplate refer to justification, that once for all declaration that you are not guilty, you are forgiven of all your sins, and that never changes, or to our sanctification, that ongoing work of becoming more and more like Jesus? So as I thought about this, I finally landed. I actually changed my view a few times, but finally landed with both, okay? I, I do think it's both, and I'm going to show you why I do think that. Now, one of those main reasons would be because we cannot separate justification from sanctification. All those who have been justified by faith alone, by grace alone, also have received a new heart. That's part of the new covenant. When, we are, when you are saved, God takes out your old heart, your heart of stone, puts a new heart in you, and writes his law on your heart so that you will do what he says. So those who are justified will show their justification by sanctification. Sanctification necessarily follows justification. So we stand firm in our justification. 
that God loves us, not based on us. God loves us based on what Christ has done once for all, the unrighteous for the righteous. And we stand firm against the schemes of the devil that wants to make us doubt that or make, make us think that God loves us based on our works or our righteousness. So we stand firm against the devil with our justification, but we also stand firm with our sanctification, with pursuing holiness. If we allow sin in our lives, if we allow bitterness and unforgiveness or anger or lust to start making a nest in your life and it controls you, it's opening a door for the devil to manipulate you, to start using you in ways, or you, you're just being ineffective for Christ. So those two aspects of the righteous, the breastplate, we need to be able to, to put on and to protect our hearts against the lies of the devil. So this afternoon we'll look at three points. Uh, we'll first start with a definition, then look at God's righteousness, and then look at our righteousness we have to, to do. So that's the three points for this afternoon. So let's start with a definition of righteousness. A definition of righteousness. So when we say the word righteousness, what do we mean? What is righteousness? Now the clue to the answer is in the word. So I'm going to say it slower, okay? Righteousness. Righteousness simply is to do what's right according to God's standards and character. Righteousness is to do what is right according to God's standards and righteousness. Now, that last part is important because left to ourselves, Judges 21-25 says, There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Look around you. Isn't that we define, we want to say what is right and wrong based on our standards, not based on God's standards. And that's a very broken world when we are left to ourselves and everybody do, does what is right in their own eyes. Or like Romans 3.18 says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That was the result of eating of the knowledge of the, the tree of the, of the knowledge of good and evil. What that tree represented was the moment Eve took the bite and Adam took the bite. We now no longer look to God to tell us what is right and wrong. We now say, I want to be like God, saying what's right and wrong according to my standards, according to what I want it to be. And what's the problem with that? Our right and wrong is often just wrong. Right? That right was a pause. I don't know if you forgot the pause. (laughs) Our right and wrong is often just wrong. It's twisted. Even the right we want to do, it's often corrupted with our own agenda, our own pride, our own, our, own, our own way of thinking. And that is our problem. Man is not righteous. We have fallen short of this perfect standard of righteousness that God, has, God is. And that's the Bible's diagnosis of your main problem. The Bible's diagnosis of our problem is not mainly something outside of us but mainly something inside of you. Parents play a role, and they play a huge role. Government plays a role. Environment plays a role. Education plays a role. All of these things plays a role, but at the end of the day, you do what you do because of your own heart. That's what the Bible says. Listen to James 1.13. It says, 
Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Our temptation comes from inside of us. Outside comes the temptation and then our hearts are desiring and being drawn to that sin. And when we sin, it's because we have chosen that sin. And we all share this problem because we have all sinned. We have all given in to our lusts and our passions and our desires. We have sinned against a holy God. And the Bible says God is a God who cannot leave the guilty unpunished. Listen to other verses as well. Proverbs 20 verse 9. Who can say... I have made my heart pure. I am clean from my sin. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. That last verse is very insightful. What is, what is a righteous man according to God's standard? A righteous man is a man who does good and never sins. That's righteousness. So who of us would dare to say, I am righteous, I've never sinned? But some of you might object, but, but I've kept at least some of the Bible, some of the law. Okay, yes, I've lied. I think all of us have lied. Yes, I've looked at lust, but some of these commandments, surely that must count for something. James 2.10 says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point becomes guilty of it all. To break the law is to become a lawbreaker. So it doesn't matter on what side of the spectrum you are of sinner, right? The wicked bad sinner or the self-righteous sinner, we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's why you and I need a righteousness that doesn't come from us or from inside of us. We need a righteousness that comes from outside of us. And that leads us to our second point and the first part of the breastplate of righteousness, God's righteousness. You and I need God's righteousness. And I love, I've used this so many times, but I like to remind you, theologians have called this the alien righteousness to emphasize that it's not inherent in you. It doesn't come from in you. It comes from outside of you. And that is exactly what God has made available for all of us through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, there was really only one man that was righteous and never sinned. There was only one man, good, perfect, holy, and righteous. And he is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Jesus, I love what he said to the Pharisees in John 8, 46. He said, which one of you convicts me of sin? What a Bold question that is, right? And what's the answer? None of you. None of you can because I'm sinless. The Passover lamb had to be without defect. It had to be a perfect lamb. You can't bring the Passover lamb crippled, blind, or with a defect in its body. And Jesus, that's why John the Baptist looks at Christ and calls him the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here is the perfect one. Here is the spotless one. Here is the one without blemish, without fault, without mistakes. And then a complete substitute took place when Jesus went to the cross. A complete substitute. He went to the cross and took our filth, our sins, our transgressions, our multitude of imperfections. 
and he took it upon himself. And I love how Peter says this. Peter, 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The righteous for the unrighteous. Romans 5 verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for whom? For the ungodly. That's another way to say the unrighteous, okay? Not focused on God. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ didn't die for the righteous because there weren't any righteous people to die for. There was none of them. There wasn't anyone like that available. He died for the ungodly. He died for the sinner. He came for the sick. People like you and me. People like us. Listen to this amazing. This is, should be one of the, the most amazing verses in the Bible. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, God the Father made him the Son to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. We become, in Christ, the very righteousness of God. Loved ones, see the awesome love of God for you. That God would give to people who deserve nothing but his anger, give to people who deserve nothing but an eternity in hell away from his presence, give his only son, And then, so that he may treat you without end, eternity upon eternity, with love, favor, kindness, and joy forevermore. That is holy love. This love is other. It's not like our love. It's different. It's set apart. His love is holy in that sense that it is inconceivable that God would love sinners like us. And here's the amazing good news for, for weary sinners like you and me. That perfect record of flawless obedience that the Son did, all of that obedience, that perfect holiness, that perfect righteousness, God now gives to you as a gift. As a gift. Simply when you put your faith in Jesus, when you simply trust in Jesus, God looks at you and says, you are righteous. You are perfect. Because you are clothed and covered with the perfect righteousness of my son. So let that sink in for a moment. You receive a perfect record of obedience. 100% because of your faith in Christ. I'm going to let that sink in. That is true of every believer. That's why only Jesus can give you rest. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Because all of those who have trusted in Christ have ceased from their own works like God has rested from his work. Only Jesus can provide that true satisfaction for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because in him we are the righteousness of God. If you are a perfectionist, perfectionists can rest because you are perfect in Christ. God sees you as perfect. Those who are working and laboring and striving to earn, to to just make God feel feel a smile upon, upon their lives, can rest in Christ because Christ said, it is finished. 
The work is done. Come and enjoy. Come and receive. Come and rest. Come to Christ and you will find rest for your soul. Because here is the one who has the authority to forgive sins and to cleanse your soul from every unrighteousness. Now, one of the lies, the main lies the devil will use in our our race is to blur the lines between justification and sanctification. To blur the lines between justification and sanctification. Or he will blur the lines between salvation and the assurance of your salvation. Let me give you an example. He would say to you, because you are struggling with your sin, you are struggling with your sanctification, which we all are doing. If you are a believer, you are struggling with sin. That's just the reality. And then he would say, you can't be saved. How can you be justified? Look at your life. Look at last week. Look at what you've done. Look at what you've not done. Or he wants to confuse your salvation with the assurance of your salvation, saying, how can you be saved if you're not even sure you are saved? Look at all those other believers. They are so sure. They're so strong. You are so weak. Your faith is so frail. How can you be one of his? But beloved, you may be truly saved and never have assurance the rest of your life. Faith is the root and assurance is the flower that blossoms in our sanctification. But some believers go to heaven on rocky grounds, on on stormy waters, but Let no one doubt this. The one with the smallest faith will be saved. If your faith is as big as a mustard seed, right? And I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's like if if, if I would hold up my hand, you won't see it in my hand. And if you have a mustard seed faith in Christ, you you are saved. You are as saved as Paul. You are as saved as John. You are as saved as as all the apostles and you are as justified in heaven as you are justified on earth. Your justification doesn't change. So, beloved, it is not the quantity of your faith, the, the amount, the bigness of your faith, but the quality of your faith. It is not even your faith itself that saves you, but the object of your faith that saves us. The Lord Jesus himself. Christ has lost none of his sheep. Not one of his sheep has ever gone to hell. That's his promise. I keep them. They are in my hand and no one will rip them out of my hand. And he will not crush or break a bruised reed. So take this breastplate of righteousness. This is how we fight. This is how we stand. When the devil shoots these arrows of doubt, these flaming darts, we say, I am covered with the righteousness of Christ. I'm not going to look to me. I'm going to look to Christ. I'm going to look away from me. I'm going to trust his promises. His promise is everyone who believes in him shall never be put to shame. Everyone, without exception. There's actually an Old Testament account, Zechariah 3 verse 1 to 5, where we see this in action, how this warfare looks like with the devil. Zechariah, I think I'm pronouncing it correct. Zechariah 3 verse 1 to 5. Listen to it. It says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you. 
and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. That's how spiritual warfare looks like. The devil comes and he accuses, but we are, our filthy garments have been taken away. We learn to use scriptures like these. Romans 8 verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So learn to use texts like these, verses like these, and say, Rian, listen to me. Who can bring a charge against you? It's Christ that died for you. Christ rose. Christ is seated at the right hand. Christ is interceding for you. Who is to condemn you? You are safe in Christ's hands. Your object of your faith is not you, it's him. And his promise is that all those who come to him, he never casts out. So listen to me. Take, I want you to think of the thing you feel your greatest failure is. If you think of your life, you think of your past, you maybe think of this last week or if you think of the future, perhaps you feel like a failure in your evangelism. That you're not sharing your faith. You're not reaching out to those who are lost. You just feel like a failure. Maybe you feel like a failure in your work or the way you do your work. Or maybe you feel like a failure in your family, in your family relationships with other people. Whatever your failure might be, how we use the breastplate is to look to the cross and see that very failure nailed to the cross. And see Jesus' perfect obedience in that area as credited to your account as a gift. And that's why you will make it to heaven. So we need this breastplate. We need this covering of our hearts to stand firm. Now the question might be, but if this is so, this is really good news for weary sinners, right? And, but wouldn't this, this grace that we are securing Christ and we are justified, wouldn't that lead to a laid back approach to our sanctification, uh, you know, um, oh, why do I have to be sanctified? Because I'm saved, right? I, I'm, I'm going to make it, so why should I stop sinning? And the irony is, it's actually those who rest f- fully in Christ that work the hardest for Christ. Those who have tasted this grace and are overwhelmed by their forgiveness are those that will give up their lives and work the hardest for Christ. And it's because those who are justified and those who are kept have also received something from God, which we call regeneration. Regeneration, which is just another word to say being born again. God has made you alive. God describes Christians as a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We are called saints, holy ones, set apart for God, to belong to God and to live for God. And that is the last point we're going to look at is our righteousness or the sanctification we need in the second part of the armor. So we have the justification, we have regeneration, but the second aspect of our righteousness is our ongoing um, righteousness that we need to work out in our own lives. So Romans 6 verse 1, Paul points to this, this reality that grace will not lead to sin because of this. Listen, he says, Romans 6 verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul's argument is, if you have been covered by grace, you're dead. 
You have been reborn. You are a new creation. Those who are dead to sin cannot live in sin. So Paul's argument is not that Christians um, won't occasionally sin. His argument is this, that for the true Christian, it will be impossible to continue in sin because you are dead to sin. It's an impossibility. You have been united to Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection through baptism. You are one with Christ. You belong to him and therefore you cannot continue. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So when God saves you, he forgives you and he heals you. He gives you a new heart that lives to righteousness, lives for holiness and obedience. Christ died to purify for himself a bride, to purchase for himself a people who will be zealous for good works. God has prepared the good works you have to do in in advance that you might walk in them. And we see this aspect of spiritual warfare back in chapter 4 again in Ephesians. Just turn there again, 4 verse 26. This is a verse we've been referring to a lot. 4.26 and 27. We see our, our righteousness and how that plays out in, in, in spiritual warfare. It says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So what happens when we refuse to forgive or our anger is in our hearts and the sun sets on our anger? And our breastplate of righteousness is cracked. And there's an opening in our, 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 our obedience to Christ. What happens? We give an opportunity to the devil. So that's how we wear the breastplate, is by obedience. So it would be worth in this verse, in this connection, to ask you right now, right here, who do you need to forgive? If this opens a door for Satan, your bitterness and your anger and your unforgiveness... Who do you need to forgive and let go? Your father, your mother, your children, a family member, a friend, a Christian, someone that was close to you? Who, when you start speaking about that person, your throat starts closing up and realize, I don't want to talk in a positive light about this person anymore. I can't. I just can't find myself. Now, what surprises me about bitterness is how small it begins. It, it often begins with just this little annoyance, this little frustration, and, and then it just keeps on growing. Before you know it, it just consumes you. Sometimes it's a shockwave of instant pain, and you say, I'm done. But listen, God said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. God says, I will give you justice. You feel you've been wronged, and you have. Often in our unforgiveness, we have a right to be angry. But God says, give that right to me. Vengeance is mine. Be free. Let it go. Trust in me. Trust in my promises. Trust in my perfect justice. In my perfect time, I will give you justice. Do you believe that? Come to me. Let go of that. Put on your armor of righteousness and stand firm in forgiveness. Do you see how it works? So as we obey this verse, 
We are wearing the breastplate of righteousness where the devil can't find a crack in our hearts and our lives. Romans 13, 12 gives another side of this as well. Connects our armor to our lifestyles. Listen to Romans 13, 12. It says, The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Do you hear? So we have to cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexu- and, and sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That's also part of this breastplate of righteousness. I'm going to start obeying God in this area. I'm going to refuse to sin. So by waging war against sin, by not making provision for the flesh, you are wearing the armor of righteousness. Now let me make another distinction the devil loves to blur. So we've said the devil loves to blur the distinction between justification and sanctification. He also loves to blur the distinction between temptation and sinning. Temptation and sinning. Why? Sometimes you feel you've sinned just because you've been tempted. Just because it's a desire of your heart. Your heart is pulled and immediately your conscience jumps on you and the devil jumps on you and says, guilty. You've sinned. And what's happening is you just constantly confess your sins. Because why? Because you are constantly tempted. But that's reality. Listen, and here's the truth, the belt of truth, girding up your loins. You need to gird up in this, in this moment. The Lord Jesus was tempted, yet without sin. Do you see? Jesus was tempted, and I, I believe it. When the Bible says he was tempted, I don't think he was kind of sort of tempted. I think he was tempted because the Bible says he was tempted, okay? He became like us in all respects except in one, without sin, So you might be tempted constantly, but that's not sin. The moment you choose, the moment you dwell, the moment you say, I'm going to linger on this, I'm going to choose to do something about this in a sinful way, that's when the desire conceives sin, like we've read in James chapter 1. So keep that distinction clear in your mind. So even as I say, put on the breastplate of righteousness and be holy, remember that you can obey. And even if you're tempted, that doesn't mean you've given in yet. Okay? You have to be quick. It's almost like Joseph, um, Joseph, right? When he was tempted, he says, I'm running. I'm fleeing. I'm not going to stay and linger and see how this movie plays out. How can I sin against God? And he, he ran. So, beloved, as we think about our lives before God, even as we prepare ourselves for communion, and which we will partake of in a, in a short while, Where are there cracks in your armor of personal righteousness, personal holiness? Now, I'm not asking if you have sin in your life. That's not what I'm asking. All of us, John says, anyone who says I have no sin lies. I'm not asking that. I'm asking, where have you started to make peace with your sin? Where have you started to accept sin as part of who you are? Maybe it's your impatience your anger, your laziness, your sexual immorality. And what you need to do is to take up your armor again. Stop being 
useless for Christ in that area, right? Isn't that what sin does? Sin makes us useless. Sin makes us slow to run. Cast off every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run the race set before us with endurance. Christian soldier, take up your armor. Stand firm in this righteousness of God that God has given you freely that never changes. That is the same the day you were saved till the day you go to heaven and for all of eternity. And stand firm in your practical personal holiness by forgiving quickly, letting go of all bitterness, pursuing holiness in this. No matter how unsuccessful you might be, that's how Jonathan Edwards loved how he said, I'm going to fight against sin no matter how unsuccessful I might be at that. Right? That's, but that's what it means to say, I'm not going to give up the fight in this war for my soul. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that your word says that none is righteous, no, not one. None of us here, Lord, have never sinned. Indeed, Lord, we sin so frequently, so daily. And yet, Lord, you have given us your greatest gift. We're thinking of Christmas and we're thinking of gifts and lights, Lord, but we can remember that in this we celebrate you, Lord, and what you have given us. You have not spared your only son, but given him up on that tree so that everyone who believes might be covered by your perfect righteousness. And Lord, we just want to rest in that. We want to drink again from this well of salvation and be satisfied with that complete and finished work of Christ on our behalf. Oh Lord, but we pray that you would also help us to stand firm in our personal righteousness, our worked out righteousness by your grace and your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray, especially those areas where we've started to make peace and started to relax our sanctification. Lord, please help us to stand, to lay off the works of darkness and to put on the armor of light and to make no provision for the flesh, for its desires. Lord, thank you for your word that that gives us this courage and strength to go and to move on. Lord, we pray as we also now partake of communion that you would search our hearts that we would rejoice in that sacrifice of Christ that he has given for us, we pray in Jesus' name.